All right, so welcome back to another edition of the Homeschool Educational Supplement that we know as Interesting Stuff. And today we will be looking at the science of art, or where art and nature and science all cross over and intermingle. It's going to be fun, so let's get to it. Now, art and science really aren't so different. I mean, in schools, maybe they separate the subjects, but in life, they're very similar a lot of the time, because there's art in science and there's science in art. And so basically, if you were to think about what is art, it's really something you create using skill and imagination, basically like a painting or a sculpture. And it's really meant to affect somebody else, to cause an emotional change within them, or some kind of reaction. And is art a science? Well, science and art really have a lot that is similar. Science and art both try to understand and describe the world around us. Scientists use creative thinking and imagination to come up with new ideas. And many artists use scientific techniques to make their art. Simply said, science and art both involve lots of experimenting and learning from our mistakes. In fact, many scientists have actually made great discoveries through error. One example was Alexander Fleming. He was a Scottish scientist who discovered the antibiotic penicillin by accident. And as an aside, he was also an artist. And instead of using specific paints, he actually used different colors of bacteria in his work. How wild is that? And then there's also the famous artist Leonardo da Vinci, most well-known probably for his painting, The Mona Lisa. Well, he was also a scientist. He tried to invent flying machines by studying birds in flight. And on the dark side, he also cut up dead bodies so he could study their structures and become a better painter. And less well known is the fact that along the way, whilst he was working with these bodies, he actually discovered some new diseases and was able to record them and categorize them for others who were interested in medicine to study. And if you've ever seen any of Leonardo da Vinci's drawings, you'll see that the details of the the muscles and the, the tendons in the hands and the arms are quite incredible. It's obvious that he was very passionate about his work and worked hard to produce really beautiful pieces of art. And so art itself is not really just about drawing and painting. It's also about other things. It's about thinking about color and how light affects objects and shadows as well. In fact, how we see objects is a result of how light bounces off the objects and towards our eyes. Because the light that we get from the sun is basically made up of all the colors of the rainbow. But colored objects absorb some of these colors. And so we only see the colors that are reflected back into our eyes. Now, many famous artists worked with a fascinating focus on color and light. One example of this was George Surat. Now, George was interested in the science of color. And what he did was he painted colorful dots. And if you look at his paintings from a distance, your brain tends to blend the dots together to make an image. 
just like the colors function on a TV screen or a monitor. You know, if you look at it really close up, it's just little pixels or dots of color. But when you step back and look at it from a distance, your brain puts the colors together and makes the images. In fact, one of Surat's paintings was actually so big that it was three meters wide and putting all the tiny dots on the picture actually took him two years to paint. And this kind of work is a style of painting that we call impressionism, where what I think happened, and this is a personal perspective, you can uh, go and study history for yourself and uh, try to pick up some different ideas, but as photography developed and photorealism emerged, it became less important for painters as artists who were, for example, making portraits to make an exact portrait of a person because you could do it with a camera. So what they did is they started to put more emotion into their pictures. And as a result, the paintings became more stylized and more impressioned and more full of the emotions and feelings of the painter. And also, as a result, some of the images became less clear, which is what led to movements like cubism, where we end up with people who have, you know, square heads and triangular bodies and lots of other little weird stuff like that. But not all artists work with paint. An example of this is Alexander Calder. Now, Alexander trained as an engineer, and in the 1930s, he created motor-driven moving sculptures. And one way to imagine this is if you um, imagine maybe a piece of paper hanging on a string or a collection of different papers hanging, say, on a string or a piece of wire or something from your ceiling. And as they hang, they, they move and they twist and they turn and they, they balance. Something like um, mobiles for, for babies that they have, that they play with in their cots and things like that. And this was the kind of art that he worked with, where he tried to balance science together with a little bit of nature and create art that moved and could have perhaps some kind of function. In fact, if you want to create a Calder-inspired piece of art, what you could probably do is get some wire coat hangers and uh, hang one from another from another and... Um, let them hang down and let them twist and turn. And it's nice because it can have some unexpected results and it can be a little bit different every time. And talking about art that was different, we also have the example of Jackson Pollock. Now Jackson, what he would do is he would lay a canvas down on the floor and he would drip and splatter paint in amazing patterns. <laughs> yep, yep, it's, um, it's kind of cool really, um, because you never really know what is going to be created. Although you still want to make something that's beautiful, in my opinion, it's kind of the ultimate form of expressionism. Now, other artists took this to an insane extreme where they would cover their bodies in paint and roll around on the canvases and call it art, which, in my opinion, is not really art, but you kind of have to give people the freedom to explore the things they want to explore. And as long as you're not hurting anybody, well, you know, give it a go. And so Pollock's paintings are now quite famous worldwide. In fact, I think they were used as the covers of some music albums for some big bands in the 1980s and 90s. And why not? Because art is about expressing yourself. 
and possibly also about challenging yourself as well at the same time. Anyway, it's crazy to think that uh, Jackson Pollock's paintbrushes never actually touched the canvas. And perhaps you could do an experiment with this as well. You could uh, get some uh, paint on a paintbrush and you could uh, you know, flick it onto uh, a paper. And sometimes it's nice to place little objects down on the paper and then you flick on the paint and then you peel off the objects and you have an impression or, or image there on the page. What I've seen other people do is that they get a whole massive canvas that's the complete floor of a room. Now, I'm not suggesting that uh, everybody do this because this is expensive and complicated, but it's just kind of interesting. What they do is they get a can of paint and they hang the can of paint from their ceiling um, so that it's hovering about a meter above the, the paper or the canvas that's on the floor. And then they poke a hole in the bottom of the can of paint and then they pull the can of paint on the string back to one side of the room and they let it go and the can of paint swings backwards and forwards and you know you can swing the can of paint so that it doesn't just go straight backwards and forwards so that it goes in a little bit of a circle and as the circle changes so the paint drops through the can onto the canvas and creates a curious kind of symmetrical work of art. And once again, it's just an interesting, creative thing to see the artists doing. And it's also not just about art, it's also about science as well, because what you're using is angles and gravity and speed and mixing all these elements together. Now, there's probably no greater art than the art that exists within nature. Just think about the the wings of a butterfly, or the stripes of a tiger, or even the colorful tail of a peacock. Or if you want to go even further, you can look at things like a magnified snowflake, and you just can't deny that there's incredible beauty in the art of nature. Now, what is it that makes art good art? Well, it's really a personal question. We can only really answer that on an individual basis. But one of the things that makes beautiful beautiful is the symmetry of nature, most especially the element of fractals that exist. Now, fractals are basically spiral shapes that appear within the natural environment. Think about a, a dot in the middle of a paper, and if you gradually start at the dot in the middle and make spirals going out and out and out from the center, you end up with something that looks like a shell that you might find on a beach. And that is the fractal spiral, and that is everywhere throughout nature. In fact, it's also how the human body grows, because we don't just grow in one direction. The, the bones in the human body grow out in all directions at the same time. And so these fractals are intricate, repeating patterns that get increasingly smaller or bigger, depending upon how you look at them. And they're all around us in the natural world. And even more than that, scientists have shown that looking at them in art and nature can actually make us feel calmer. And it was the mathematician Benoit Mandelbrot, and I probably mispronounced that, and I'm sorry, but he came up with the word fractal, meaning fractured or broken. He described fractals as a shape made up of parts similar to the whole. And basically what happens is, if you zoom in on a fractal, you will see the same pattern again and again repeated. 
Imagine the leaves of a fern tree, because these are miniature versions of the branches themselves. Or consider the fact that Leonardo da Vinci noticed fractal patterns of river systems. Where if you imagine a picture of a river system, say, taken from the sky or, you know, somewhere in the upper atmosphere, you notice that it grows somewhat like a tree. And trees themselves, from the big trunk to the smallest twig, are basically a branching pattern of repeated systems. And not only that, recent studies have shown that patients recover more quickly if their hospital rooms look out on natural scenes. For example, a forest of trees. And it was the Japanese artist Hokusai's, and I've probably mispronounced that as well, famous painting, The Great Wave of Kanagawa, which you've probably seen, but you don't know that you've seen it. It's a it's blue and white picture of a curling wave with a mountain with snow on it in the distance and uh, boats in the water. And it shows the top of a big wave breaking off into smaller, similar waves. And scientists have discovered that just looking at pictures like this can actually make people feel more relaxed, comfortable, and less stressed. And then on top of that, there's the fractal shapes that we can find within snowflakes. There's the shells that we can pick up on a beach. There's even these shapes within the food that we eat, especially vegetables that we can find on our plate at dinner. In fact, microscopic images of cauliflowers have shown that the vegetable forms natural fractals based on the Fibonacci sequence of numbers. And finally, if you look up into space and you look at the spiraling galaxies of the universe, well, they're fractals as well. Now, as already mentioned, scientists can be artists as well, and artists can be scientists. And one great example of this is Maria Sibyla Merian more commonly known to her friends as Maria, and she was born in Frankfurt, Germany in 1647. And what she did was combine her talent as an artist with her skill in scientific observation. And she uncovered the secrets of the life cycles of moths and butterflies. Basically, in the 17th century, many scientists believed in the long-held theory of spontaneous generation. They thought that insects just suddenly appeared out of mud and wool and vegetables and even things like rotting meat. Well, Maria's work revealed that the true life cycle of insects was different. Maria believed that the only way to properly understand the lives of caterpillars, moths and butterflies was to observe and record them in their natural habitats. This was a groundbreaking idea, as most butterfly collections of the time were presented dried and pinned into a box, with no real sense of how they behaved when they were alive. Now, Maria grew up in a house full of art. Her father was an engraver, and after he died, her mother married a painter. This painter recognized Maria's talent and encouraged her to draw and to paint. At first Maria painted flowers, but soon her interest was caught by the altogether more unusual subject of silkworms. Using her keen observation skills and her talent for drawing, 13-year-old Maria watched as these insects moved through their life cycle from eggs to larvae to cocoons, and finally hatching as moths. After silkworms, Maria moved on to caterpillars, and she began to keep them all over her house. Can you imagine? On plants, in jars, on shelves, <laughs> probably under the bed as well. 
Sometimes she stayed awake all night just to make sure she did not miss the moment when a butterfly emerged from its cocoon. And after nearly 20 years of work, Maria published her book, The Wondrous Transformation of Caterpillars, in 1679. It was unlike any book on insects that had ever been published before. In the book, she not only drew every stage of the silkworm's life cycle, but she also took lots of notes, creating a valuable record of her discoveries. In 1699, Maria sailed to Suriname in South America, funding her travels through the sale of her paintings. Maria became one of the first people to undertake an expedition purely for the sake of science. For two years, Maria trekked through the thick jungle and climbed trees with the aim of collecting enormous varieties of insects, which she then observed and painted. When she returned to Amsterdam, she wrote another book, The Metamorphoses of the Insects of Suriname. Maria included detailed descriptions alongside 60 full-color illustrations showing the life-sized insects and the plants of Suriname. The public were entranced by the exotic colors of the butterflies and the drama of the scenes she painted. One example of this was a huge tarantula eating a brightly plumed hummingbird. So Maria's work was vital for the development of understanding nature. It helped show the importance of science and art together. Her detailed illustrations and observations inspired many others, such as the Swedish naturalist Carl Linnaeus, who used her drawings to create his famous classification of insects. And that is that, as they say. So take a look around yourself today. Have a look at those places in your life where science and art cross over. Take a look at some simple examples. Think about the way a door opens and closes and the different designs of doors that you can have. And the same with windows. Take a look in your kitchen at the cups and the plates and the knives and the forks and all the things that are beautiful yet still have a function. Or you can just look at the clothes you wear and enjoy the patterns and designs within. So there's science and art everywhere. And you know one of my favorite kinds of art? Let me tell you. It's the bad dad jokes. So here we go. We're going to slip some in at the end, just for fun. Are you ready? Okay. Why was the picture sent to the prison? It was framed. Did you like that? (laughs) Here's another one. What do you call a painting by a cat? A portrait. Ta-da! I know, they're really bad, but, you know, you gotta throw in some light stuff here and there. And one more. Okay, what did the artist do before she went to bed? She drew the curtains. Did I make you laugh? Did I make you smile? Probably not, but never mind. It's all in the spirit of a bit of fun. So I hope you enjoyed today's session about art and science. I know that art and science have played a huge part in improving the quality of my life, and I hope that you will see how it affects your life as well. As always, there are comprehension questions under the video to help you check your understanding, and if you'd like a different topic, well, let me know and I'll look into it. So that's all for now. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, have a great day, and I'll speak to you again soon. Take care.